May the Lord's word be always on our minds, on our lips, and deep in our hearts. Would you join me in a word of prayer before this morning's message? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. She was deeply troubled with the greeting. She was deeply troubled by the visitor. That's what the text tells us. A young girl out in the, I like to imagine her in the fields, surrounding Nazareth. And a visitor comes. He proclaims, The Lord is with you, most highly favored amongst women. A strange greeting for perhaps a middle school girl, wouldn't you say? Scholars are pretty sure that Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old when Gideon, the angel, came to visit her. And he said, you are going to have a child, and this child is not going to be like any other child. This child is going to be called the Son of the Most High, and he will reign on David's throne forever. I've known some 13, 14-year-old girls. How do you think she would respond to this information? Well, she responded like 13, 14-year-old girl does. How can this be? I've followed the Jewish laws, never been with a man, and I have no intention. I'm, I'm engaged, but we're not married yet. The angel says, do not fear, for the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will conceive a child. And you are to name him Yeshua, Jesus, because he is God among you and he will rescue the people from their sins. And now I wonder, what will a 13, 14-year-old girl say? As she's learning this information, this scandal that she's about to experience, could you imagine this happening in Cavalier? 13, 14-year-old girl pregnant out of wedlock, and she claims, an angel told her this would happen. She claims that this is a virgin birth. Imagine the furrowed brows, the wagging fingers, the, the scandal upon this young lady. And if it was... A normal 13 or 14-year-old girl, my guess in a small town, Nazareth was probably a town of two to 300 people. Vast majority of the people that lived there were probably her relatives. My guess is most girls would have said, no way. What you're asking of me is way too much. But we know the story. That's why we like to come on During the Christmas season, we know the story. We know that she says, may it be done to me as you have said. And if only, if only folks could say the same today when God asked them something, right? The amazing faith 
of this young girl. And why would she have this kind of faith? I mean, is there any evidence? Is there anything that she has to go on? Or is this just a blind leap of faith? I mean, yes, she saw an angel. That's pretty impressive. But it could have been something she ate at lunchtime, too. I mean, she's a middle schooler. Who's going to believe this story? And by the way, as you read the story, you find out not many believe the story. Even the man she's engaged to. Not until he had an angel visit him did he believe the story. Today we're going to look at the ancient practices, the ancient, uh, sorry, not practices, but the ancient uh, promises Start with a PR and an O. I knew that. I just had the long, wrong words at the end. But the ancient promises that would cause Mary to believe the angel's words. And we heard those ancient promises read to us, 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 chapter, 2 Samuel 7, um, I want to focus on verses 15 and 16 today. Where the scriptures tell us this, but my love, and this is God speaking to Nathan, the prophet, who is going to go and say this to David, the king, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In the yellow there, I put the Hebrew word that endure is translating. It's the word ne'eman. You know how the end of prayers, everybody says, amen? Can you hear that word in that a little bit, ne'eman? In fact, that's the same root. What does amen even mean? Does anyone know what that means? I mean, you say it regularly, at least at church. Amen is a non-translated Hebrew word, which means that's true. So when you're wrapping up your prayers, you're saying that's true. Or if you're younger and you like hip-hop, you might say true that, right? That's true. True that. So every time you see amen in the scriptures, every time you see it in pop culture, every time you, you say those words, just remind yourself, this is a Hebrew word that means that's true. And so it also can be used, it's got this range of meanings of true or trust or faith or faithfulness. And here in this context, what God is saying is that I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. My faithfulness, my trustworthiness will make this happen. My trustworthiness is going to cause you, David, to always have an heir on the throne. Wow. Scholars call this the Davidic covenant there's three covenants that are in the Old Testament. The, the first is the Noahic covenant, and we know this one. We remember this one from rainbows. God made a covenant with the earth, with Noah. He said, never again will I send rain upon the earth to the point that it floods. He still sends rain, thank God, but just not to that extent. 
And my rainbow in the sky will remind you of this covenant I have made with humankind. The next covenant that we see is told to us in Exodus 19, and, and, and it's where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he re- receives the Ten Commandments. And the children of Israel, through their representative Moses, make a covenant with God. And these covenants, actually I skipped one. There's four covenants in the Old Testament. The one before that is with Abraham. Guess what that one's called? You just add an IC at the end of the dude's name. Abrahamic, right? See what's going on there? Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic. I don't know why they did it that way, but it's pretty slick. The Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was... uh, He was a camel herder. He was living in tents out in the Middle East. And he stepped outside of his tent one night because God showed up to him and said, go outside and look up in the sky at the stars. And he says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars that you see. What strange promise to a guy who's 100 years old. His wife is 90. They have yet to have a child. But he believed God. And the scriptures tell us that his belief was credited to him as righteousness. And then we have this covenant, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God tells David, King David, that you're going to have someone on the throne forever. There will always be a king from the line of David. And it's fascinating, these promises that God is making. In fact, Psalm 89 is kind of a a poet who is riffing on these ideas. And Psalm 89 says this, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said... And then he quotes 2 Samuel 7 back to God. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your love forever, your line forever, and make your throne firm through all generations. And this psalm, the first part of the psalm, the psalmist is reflecting on this covenant that God made with David. And the psalmist is using this as a means for himself, as is written by Ethan, we're told at the beginning of the psalm, a way for him to reflect upon God's faithfulness, not only to David and the Davidic line, and not only to Israel, but also to personalize it and reflect on God's faithfulness for himself. And we do this oftentimes. In fact, there's a great hymn, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Have you ever spent time reflecting on God's faithfulness to you? Maybe to the point that you wrote a poem. Maybe you're not a poet. Maybe you are and you don't know it. But reflecting on God's faithfulness is a good thing for us to do. Our culture often says that we need to practice gratitude, and that's a good thing to practice, and the scriptures encourage that. But let me encourage you that when you are practicing gratitude, how about you look behind the scenes a little bit, you try to lift the hood, and you try to see, okay, I have this gratitude. 
How is this gratefulness, my thanksgiving, demonstrating God's faithfulness to me? Reflecting upon God's faithfulness. And as you're all sitting here, many of you with masks on, it's sometimes difficult, isn't it, to think that God is being faithful? To think that God is being faithful to us, to this world? And that is the interesting part of the last part of the Psalm 89, but we're going to get to how that happened. You see, one of the things that happened in David's line is not everybody was faithful to Yahweh. Not everybody was faithful to God. And one of the, one of the tensions that we see happen is, what does God do when we are faithless? What does God do when people aren't faithful to the covenant? How does God respond? God had warned the people in the Mosaic covenant that there would be consequences if they followed other gods. There would be consequences if they didn't practice the Sabbath, what we looked at last week. There would be consequences if they broke his laws. And the ultimate consequence was going to be that they would be taken into exile, that there would be another nation that would come and take them away. The first kingdom to fall was the kingdom of Israel in the north. And they had a really bad king. His name was Ahaz. And 2 Kings chapter 16 gives us a summary statement of what his rule and reign was like. It says Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. And so all the kings after David are going to be compared. Do you ever compare, I don't know, pastors to other pastors? (laughs) We tend to compare, don't we? And the scriptures are telling us that the reign and rule in the heart And the spirituality of the kings that came after David were all compared to King David. You see, King David was faithful for the most part to God. And when he wasn't faithful, like in the whole incident with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband, he repented. He confessed his sin and God forgave him. And his heart was broken over his sin. But David repented, and for the most part in the scriptures say he was faithful to God. Ahaz, it says, was not like David. He was not faithful to God. He served other gods. Then 2 Kings 24 starts to tell us what happens as a result of all these unfaithful kings. This is many, many years later. It says this, At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem. So Israel, the northern kingdom, has already fallen. They're already, they've already been scattered by the Assyrians. It's already been destroyed. This is the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is the capital. This is the southern kingdom of Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, advances on Jerusalem and lays siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came to the city. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. And in the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. 
And then he sets up Jehoiachin's uncle and renames him Zedekiah. And Zedekiah becomes now a puppet king, a vassal king. He's supposed to do what the Babylonians want done with Jerusalem and the surrounding territories. And he rebels. Gets a little too big for his britches. And so King Nebuchadnezzar comes back to town. And 2 Kings 25 tells us what happens there. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And then Psalm 89 was reflecting on how great God's faithfulness was. But then we see that it was actually written after the fall of Jerusalem. And the psalmist takes this dark, gloomy turn where he says, you have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. In verse 49, Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? I think this is so powerful for us to see a person in the scriptures wrestling with God's faithfulness. If we were to put this in modern English, maybe we would change the words to great is thy faithfulness, and it would read this. Where is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father? There is no truth in your dealings with me. Some of you, that makes you anxious and nervous hearing somebody change the words to a hymn. And, oh my gosh, can we say these doubts and these concerns? I'm just following the Bible. You see, the Bible is very clear. It is constantly affirming God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness. It reaffirms that again and again and again. Verses 1 through 38 of Psalm 89, do it. They say, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. But then in verse 39, it says, however, however, I don't see much evidence for your faithfulness, God. What I see around me is Jerusalem burned down and the palace destroyed and the king has been drugged to Babylon and his eyes were gouged out and he grovels for food on the ground at the king's table. And he is the last heir. God, where is your faithfulness? And this is so important for us to hear, too, because what I love about this psalm is that the psalmist, a poet, and the Holy Spirit said, by the way, print it, that's good Bible. The Holy Spirit said, there is going to be folks in Cavalier 2,000, 3,000 years later, and they're going to have doubts. They're going to doubt God's goodness. They're going to doubt God's faithfulness. They're going to doubt God's trustworthiness. And sometimes at church, what people do to help you is just say, well, just believe. Just have faith. And I can tell you that one of the good answers to that is to say, you mean faith like the poet in Psalm 89? Faith like the poet in Psalm 89 where he said, yes, God is faithful, but however, I'm struggling to see his faithfulness right now in my life. 
I'm struggling to see his faithfulness in the world. And now we enter into this grand story ourselves in 2020, a year that has brought terrible ugliness out of us and out of this world, fighting and bickering over politics and masks and safety and livelihoods and ideas and ideologies and how to live. And it's easy for a watching world to sit here and think, where is God? Is there a God? And the church comes together during these four Sundays of Advent and we light these candles because we are proclaiming that God is faithful even though it may seem that he's not. Even though it may seem that he's not present, he's not nearby, he's not here, he is faithful. Well, preacher, I know you're paid to say things like that. Why on earth should we believe this? Well, if we keep reading into the New Testament, the book of Matthew The first words of the New Testament say this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, beginning there, says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. A descendant of who? David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Israel's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And I'm sure Mary, when she heard those words, it made it easier for her to say, may it be done to me as you have said, because she heard the ancient words from 2 Samuel 7 ringing out saying, I, in my faithfulness, will establish David's kingdom forever. He will always have an heir, a ruler, a king on the throne. And now as a 13, 14-year-old scared girl in Nazareth, she's got this information that will energize her that she is carrying the coming king. How often do we forget that? How often do we celebrate Christmas but we forget the king? That he is a king. And how often do we forget that this king is a clear demonstration of God's faithfulness to us? And how often do we forget that this baby will grow up and he will walk on water and he will heal blind eyes and he will cause the lame to walk and he will open deaf ears and he will proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near and he will go to a cross and he, the king, will die 
And then we think, God said forever. What happened to that promise? Well, if you read all the way to the end of all four Gospels, if you read Paul's reflections in his letters, if you read John's reflections in his letters, if you read the book of Revelation, if you keep tracking with the story, you quickly find out that three days later, Jesus pulled off Easter. He walked out of his own grave. And now what can what can possibly stop him? The greatest threat to all of us in this room is death. That's why we mask up. That's why we social distance. That's why we follow these guidelines, because we are afraid of our own death, and we are fearful of the death of others. It is the worst possible thing that can happen to any of us. And just imagine if you could defeat that. How powerful would you be? And that's exactly what this king did. He walked out of a grave, his own grave. And the scriptures proclaim that if you put your faith, see how these all tie together? If you put your trust, if you place your allegiance in this king and his kingdom, you too will walk out of your grave. The King Jesus will raise you from the dead. That's good news, gang. That's the best news of all. And that's why Christmas is so powerful. That's why it's the best news ever to be heard in this world. That there is a king forever on the throne. And his name is Jesus. And this king doesn't just, he's not a lord it over you and get his whip out and crack it and make you do what he wants. He is a king that laid down his life for you. And that is far more powerful than cracking a whip. Because if he laid down his life for you, then anything he asks of you would seem to be a reasonable request. Isn't it? This Christmas season, this last Sunday of Advent, we're getting, we're turning the corner, and Christmas Eve, 5 o'clock, if you can make it out, it'll be online, but we'd love to see you on Christmas Eve to worship the birth of Christ and to remind ourselves of this great King who came and lived and died for us and reflect on God's faithfulness. As the Apostle Paul puts it, even when we are faithless, and I'm at the top of that line, I'm in the front of that line, even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Amen.